You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants was what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who was, sorry, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, and who is to come the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. It's great to see so many new faces here this morning. My name's Jonathan. I'm the pastor here and It's my privilege to open up God's Word just about every week in this church, although I think it's been four weeks, four Sundays since I last preached, so rusty. Um, Keep that uh, book of Revelation open to the first eight verses. We're going to be working through that this morning. you know, when I was 19 years old, I was just a little kid, and uh, I was uh, traveling around the UK backpacking around by myself, um, discovering the mother country, discovering myself, and um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it was good, it was fun, um, it, was, um, it was quite tenuous a lot of the time, I didn't know what I was doing, and um, I just kind of fumbled my way around for a couple of months, and the best part of my trip, I think, I enjoyed the whole thing. Uh, but the best part probably was this tour that I took through the highlands of Scotland. Um, and, uh, and I remember being on this, this, it was just this little bus with a really great tour leader, local guy, who took us up through the highlands and out to the Hebrides, made our way out to the Isle of Skye. And I remember very vividly, like, sitting, I was in the back seat of this van, because I'm one of those cool guys, and I was sitting in the back seat, and, and on my 
Uh, and I just remember traveling through the most beautiful country, like the most stark, rugged, high country of Scotland, and, uh, and just kind of like taking it all in. And from my back seat, I had in front of me like one row to the right was they were all American tourists. And uh, they were annoying because the whole time that we were going through this tour with this brilliant, funny local guide talking us through it, the whole time they were just sat facing each other, talking, just talking the whole way through. And I really remember this one point where we, I think we'd stopped at a pub or something, and um, we were discussing what we'd seen, and at one point, a woman, one of these Americans, said, oh, we don't know anything about this place, we're just ignorant Americans. Like, yeah, there's a reason for that. <laughs> On my left was a whole bunch of Australians who were just, they were, they were different to the Americans, like, in a, in a bad way different. They were worse. They were... They were obnoxious, just really obnoxious Australians. Uh, like I was tempted to put on a New Zealand accent just so people wouldn't think I was with them. And they were obnoxious in that, like the whole way through the tour, again, they were talking, but they were saying how much better Australia was than this place we were in. And how, well, this place reminds me a little bit of home, only it's better there. You know, like just really obnoxious, arrogant, annoying people. And so that was in front of me, to my right and to my left. And then right down the front, the very front seat, there was this young German girl. And she spent the entire tour just like entranced by everything. She was just like there was a look of just wonder on her face. And she was just absorbing everything she was seeing. Just this really young girl traveling by herself as well and listening to everything the tour guide was saying, and if she didn't understand some of his like, Scottish accent, she would ask him to clarify, and she was writing stuff down, taking photos, and just absolutely absorbing it. She was a good tourist. And that's the kind of attitude I want us to have coming into this book, the book of Revelation, because we are tourists as we journey through this book. It's a foreign text was written to people who lived in a very different world to the one we're living in. And so to understand it, like when we come to any text, really, and particularly texts that are written in foreign languages like this one or written long ago like this one, we need to be able to have that sort of tourist mentality, not ignorant of the local setting and not arrogant some kind of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, like we are so much more advanced because we live a couple of thousand years later, but rather just with humility, open to receiving whatever we see along the way. That's the kind of attitude I want us to have really every week, but I think particularly important when we come to this book, because this book is very foreign and it's very daunting to many of us. My kind of working hypothesis, working assumption as I've been studying this book is that most of us probably haven't ever done any in-depth study of it. Most of us probably haven't ever read all the way through it. And what we do know has probably come through really bad movies and books 
that I think completely miss the point of the whole book. So, we're going to need some humility as we come to this text, and I want us to be like that German girl. I want us to be open and entranced by what we see. Take notes, ask questions. If you're not yet in a small group, then join one so that you can carry on the discussion. Uh, I, I can't get anywhere near a kind of full and even satisfactory um, understanding through simply getting up here and speaking week to week. We need to do more. We need to discuss. We need to wrestle. And so please, avail yourself of the ministries we have here designed to do that. This morning I'm going to be setting the table. That's the metaphor I've been thinking about as I've been approaching this week. I just want to set the table for us. We've got 15 weeks, God willing, to work through this. We're going to stretch that out over the rest of the year leading up to Advent. And so what I want us to do here this morning is the really important work of setting the table. When I was a kid, that was my job in our house. I had to set the table. And my older brother got to um, like dish out the food. And I always thought that he had a way better job than me. Just, it's, just, it's just kind of cooler, right? Like you're dealing, I'm just putting plates down and cutlery. It's so boring. It's the same thing every time. And yet, I realized as I was thinking about this metaphor, I mean, you can have the best food in the world, but unless the table is set, you're not eating anything. So that's what we're doing this morning. It's vital work. Set the table set the kind of context for the book, our understanding of how to read it. We're going to try and attempt to do all of that here this morning. Um, Again, let me just point you in the direction of the series guide where a lot of this stuff is written out in more detail. And so if you don't get it here, at least you'll have something that you can carry on reading throughout the week and throughout the weeks. So whenever we come to God's Word, and I think this goes for studying any text if you're into reading, especially old books, but absolutely when it comes to the Bible, a fundamental truth, um, a fundamental principle of understanding the Word of God is to ask the question, what was God trying to say through the author to the original audience? We're always asking that question. If, if, if you have a preacher, you want to make sure that preacher understands that principle and that it's the primary thing he's on about or she's on about. We need to understand what God was saying through his author to the original audience it was written to. So that's why we spend a lot of time here talking about context and understanding the sort of historical setting of where things were uh, where the audience who was, had been written to, what, the way that they lived, the kinds of things that they were going through, right? That's all essential. Otherwise, what you do is come to God's Word and you just put yourself in the center of it and suddenly it's all about you and you're completely uh, untethered from the context it was written in and you can come up with all kinds of conclusions. So, I just want to ask some simple questions about this book. These are the kinds of questions you can ask about any book of the Bible, and it's particularly important, I think, in books like this one. So you can ask, when was it written? And it's not written in the text itself when it was written. They didn't used to write the date on the top of the page like we tend to do today. Um, But we know from early church history and 
fairly conclusively that this book was written in the, the 90s. So it's quite late for the New Testament, written in the 90s AD. So towards the end of the first century, about 60, 50, 60 years after Jesus. Um, so that's date. Then we, we need to ask who is the author. He, he names himself as John. Again, church tradition has this as the John who is the disciple that Jesus loved, right? one of Jesus' best friends, the author of the Gospel of John, the three letters of John. These days, most scholars doubt whether that's true, and I won't go into the details of why. These are good, you know, good godly people who doubt that it was that John. They think it might have been another John called John the Elder, another leader in the church of the time. I'm not really that bothered about it. I don't think you should be either. I don't think it really changes much um, when it comes to what God wants to say th- to us through this. I'm, I'm really happy if it's John the Apostle, and I'm just as happy if it's some other John. It's John anyway, all right? So I'm going to keep referring to John. And uh, John is God's chosen instrument, uh, puts this book in our hands this morning. So we praise God for John. Um, date, author, audience... So the audience, again, is really clear, named in the book. The audience is the seven churches uh, of the region of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. So there's a, a little map. You'll find that in your guide as well. Seven churches there. You've got John on Patmos. So he's been exiled. This is where Rome sent people they weren't very happy with, political uh, prisoners. They would send them to this little island of Patmos. There was no way off it. Um, we don't know if he was chained up or if he just had to be on the island like people in Tasmania, right? Um, and uh, and uh, anyway, he's on, <laughs> he's on Patmos. Um, I should have gone with New Zealand. I really like Tasmania. Anyway, um, Patmos, he's there and he's, he's writing to these seven churches. These are real churches full of real Christians who are really around in the first century. Very historically grounded text. And so he even lists them in the order that he lists them. It's the list that um, would be the order of someone carrying a letter or a document from, uh, from the coast through those churches. That, that's the sequence that he addresses them in. So very particularly written to those people at that time. That gives us historical context um, for the text itself. And again, this is all helping just tether us to a, a greater understanding of why it was written and who it was written for. Date, author, audience. Um, it's worth noting here as well that, uh, that you'll find, and this is another image that I found helpful, you'll find that this book, the structure of the book, the, the um, substance of the book, the, the kind of building... The edifice of this book is written to these seven churches, but the foundation, the thing that it all rests on, the thing that's propping it up and enabling it to stand is the Old Testament. Like this book is just saturated with Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets like Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. So if you came straight into this book without ever having any experience of the Old Covenant prophets, you would likely miss I don't know, all of it. It's just, like, he's just saturated. John, this guy John, just absolutely knows the Old Testament scriptures and particularly those major prophets. 
So if you're going to understand this book, you probably want to go to, you're going to want to at least be flipping back to Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And if you've got a Bible that has little footnotes or interlinear notes um, with references, you want to be following those as you read it through. That'll be really helpful. So, date, author, audience, genre. I know, I, this sounds all a bit like your, like your English lit class or something. And I, we, I, I promise once we're done this, we'll, we'll move out of the, the foundational stuff to an extent. Anyway, genre. This is, I've got a picture of the genre, actually. Um, that's the genre. That's my boy. May he rest in peace. May he rise in the new creation. That's my, that's my dog, Chesterton. And... Um, Chester was a, a mixed breed. He's a staffy bull terrier, and then he had something else in him, some other genetic material that made him like 250% more handsome than every other staffy. And that's my boy. And um, this is a mixed breed when it comes to genre. This, this letter to, to, to the seven churches, it's, it's part of the reason why we might find it a little bit hard to understand. Uh, There's at least three genres, maybe more, that are employed by John in this text, all right? So the first thing we need to know is that it's an apocalypse, an apocalypse. That's where we get the name Revelation from. Apocalypse means unveiling or or revelation. So you get this in verse 1. Take a look at it with me. The very first couple of words. The revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. It's an apocalypse. Now, the problem for us is that no one has written an apocalypse for 1,800 years. just hasn't happened. This style of writing was really common, especially in Hebrew culture in the first century, or a couple of centuries around Jesus' birth, before and after, Apocalyptic literature was really common, and they knew how to read it. Then no one wrote it for 1,800 years. The only apocalypses that were studied were this one and a couple others, and we just have no idea how to read it. We don't have the first idea. You, you weren't taught in school how to read apocalypse. There was no reason to, and so we don't get it. And this is why many of us stumble after the first chapter and a half. It's a little bit like um, it's a little bit like us with with the novel, right? Most of us have read a novel before. All of us know what a novel is. We take for granted that novels are things, and I mean they're everywhere. You buy them at the airport, the petrol station. There's Pulp Fiction for a dollar a piece. Like novels are everywhere, massively popular. All of the most popular stories in our own experience are novels. But 300 years ago, they had no idea what a novel was. 300 years ago, if you went up to someone and said, oh, you should really read this, it's called Harry Potter, they would be like, what is this? No idea. They'd be like, this guy, Harry Potter, has an amazing life. Because they would have expected it must be some kind of biography. They had no, they had no version of what we call a novel. If you wanted to write a piece of fiction... 300 years ago, or in the Middle Ages, or in antiquity, you would write an epic poem, or you would write a play. If you gave a novel to Shakespeare, he would be like, what on earth is this? 
Yet we completely take it for granted and we pick it up knowing this is a made-up story that is written as if it's a true story. We do that automatically. People in other cultures, in fact, most of the people who have ever lived would have no idea. So it is with Apocalypse. We just don't know how to read it. And because we, it, we, we have this um, chronological snobbery, because we believe we are so much more advanced than other cultures, we pick up their stuff and say, oh, we know, we know, don't worry, we get it. And then we're like the obnoxious Australians who miss the point completely. It's arrogance that leads us astray. So we need to understand what apocalypse is if we're going to get this book at all. We need to do a kind of crash course in how to read apocalypse. We'll get to more on that as we go through and and maybe if we have time a little bit later on today. So first of all, it's an apocalypse. It's, as I've said, I've titled this series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And, and, And that's what you need to know. It's an unveiling a revelation, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That is, it's from him. He's the one who gives it to John. He's not making this up as he goes along. He wasn't doing mushrooms one morning and just started seeing... Be- like, this is something from... You can laugh at that. It's okay. Well, one or two? All right. Um, this is a vision from Jesus to John, from Jesus about Jesus. So where's it coming from? Jesus. Who is it about? Jesus. That's the answer. So the apocalypse, the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus about Jesus. Secondly, it's a prophecy. You get this in verse 3. Let's read that. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. That's a very cool verse. I think it's the only one in Scripture where we get this promise of a blessing for reading and hearing what has been written. That's why each week we'll probably take more time than we usually do just reading this text. Even if I never got up and explained any of it, just reading it would be great, a great benefit to us all. God promises blessing for those who speak it, those who hear it, and those who keep it. We're going to see that over and over again. Uh, Later on, there's sort of a bookend to this in in the last chapter, uh, chapter 22, I think it's verse 7, he essentially says the same thing. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So blessing and prophecy, both in both verses. So how is it a prophecy? It's not a prophecy in the Nostradamus kind of sense, right? It's not a prophecy in that it's going to tell you, it's a, like it's a crystal ball into the future. This book's going to talk a little bit about the future, but it's not a prophecy in that sense. It's a prophecy in the sense of the, the old covenant prophets were prophecies. That is, they are speaking words that have come from God. Thus saith the Lord, the Old Testament prophets say. And this is essentially what John is doing. God has spoken to me. I have written it down. Here's what he said. It's also prophecy in the sense, again, that the Old Testament prophets were prophesying. They were prophets. That is, they are calling people to obedience, fealty to a Lord. John's going to do that over and over again. He's going to say, this is what Jesus says, you must obey it. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. He is king. We're going to get these visions of Jesus that are just like he is without rival 
anywhere. Beasts and dragons and all kinds of things are going to try and unseat him from his throne. And he's, he, as Psalm 2 says, he laughs. He laughs. He is unrivaled. And so what he demands from us is really, really of utmost importance. The prophets went around to the people of Israel saying, this is what God says, you need to hear it, you need to keep it, or there is going to be judgment. And John says exactly the same thing in his text. So it's an apocalypse and it's a prophecy. And thirdly, it is a letter. It's a letter. Verse 4 to 6. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you know New Testament letters, you'll know that that is just a standard kind of format for how they begin. The author identifies himself, he addresses his audience, and then he just breaks out in doxology. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. And it shows us that is what this is. At least in part, it is part of the mixed breed, both apocalypse and prophecy and letter written to real people in a real time. And so we need to know from the beginning, this book of Revelation is written for us, but it's not written to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. It was written to the seven churches in Asia, in modern-day Turkey, in the first century, probably the 90s AD. Now, all of this, I hope, helps us figure out how we should read this book. It gives us, the, the, we've set the table, we've, we've understood a little bit of the foundational context, and now we need to figure out how it is that we process it, how it is that we interpret the text itself. And uh, there's four main ways that people have done this, four main ways that you can do this, and you are free to choose any of the four that you like. I'll tell you my kind of methodology after we've gone through them. I'm going to use the four technical terms. Um, if you forget these within seconds, then don't worry. Um, if you really want to sound obnoxious in your small group, then memorize them all and refer to them constantly. So it's up to you. There are four main ways. Four main ways. Um, so first of all, the first way um, that people can interpret the book of Revelation. Okay, so the first one is historicist. And uh, this is the belief that the book of Revelation maps on to the history of the church. Right from the beginning of the church, at Jesus' ascension, and at Pentecost, all the way through to whenever Jesus returns, 
the, the book picks that up in, I think it's chapter 20, verse 6, through to the end. You get the, the end of history, the end of the world stuff. But, but then this book sort of unfolds through human history and maps on to events in human history. And that's how people who take this view interpret the book. Um, obviously, from generation to generation, this shifts as new events happen and you sort of have to update the map uh, a little bit. But that's, that's the idea. That's the method of interpretation, the, the, the lens that they view this book through. Okay, that's number one. Number two is the futurist position. Pull that up, guys. The futurist position is pretty much the same, but it just puts all of those events forward. So all of the events, just about, apart from the first little bit to the churches, pretty much everything in the book of Revelation, according to a futurist, is happening in the future from 21st century people. So way in the future from the first people who heard it, like at least a couple of thousand years in the future from them, but in the future from us as well. It's all... It's all about stuff that's yet to happen. Um, and so they're interpreting the text through, this is telling us what's yet to come. And we've got to be, we've got to be figuring it out as, as we come across this or that thing. It, maybe it'll match up with the, the uh, revelation. Futurist. Third one is preterist. Almost the opposite of futurist. Preterists believe that revelation is written to first century people about first century things. And pretty much all of it, um, except the last couple of chapters, which are about second coming, new heavens and new earth, um, all of it is about stuff that happened in the first century. And referring mainly, probably, to the fall of Jerusalem uh, in the 70s, and, or maybe you could stretch it out to the fall of Rome a couple of hundred years later, a few hundred years later, depending on where you date it. But it's, it's, it's early stuff, it's ancient stuff. It's, it's written to early people about early stuff that was going on, and then at the end you get the end times kind of stuff. So that's preterist. Last one, I promise, idealist. So for them, they don't, they don't see it as mapping onto any historical events particularly, but Revelation is timeless truth about evil, the church, God's plan for everything, and it's sort of echoes through history. It, 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 it rebounds. It's like a boomerang just coming back around and stuff that's talked about in the text is stuff that you will find in every generation in, in its own kind of context and its own kind of application. So, you got them? Historicist? Everything maps onto all of history from Pentecost to the end of time. Futurist, everything in Revelation is yet to come, pretty much. Preterist, everything is back in the first century, pretty much. Idealist, everything is everywhere. It's just sort of echoes and rebounds. And these are each, each of those, I mean, you can figure out and do your own study and read the book and see what you think. And, all, and good Christian people hold all of those positions. I do think, however, that it's worth you knowing my interpretation, my methodology, which again, there you go, it's, uh, it's Chesterton, it's a mixed breed, all right, which is perfectly fine, you don't have to choose one of four, you can mix them up a little bit, and um, so for me, the kind of leading edge of my interpretation, it's worth knowing this just because I'm going to be the one talking, so you need to know where my kind of angle's coming from, so the leading edge of my reading is preterist, 
all right, to the extent that it takes this book as a document written to real people at a real time. So the first step in interpreting what it means is understanding who it was written for and why. And so in this sense, right, here's, a, here's an application of this, this understanding. My view would be that if you read the book of Revelation and you see the beast and you think, like many people in the Middle Ages it did, the beast is the Pope. Or if you think, that no, the beast is Putin. Or the beast is Trump. Or whatever, the beast is Smith, right? It, whatever, whatever. I mean, please don't do that. that. Or at least don't come to this church if you do that. Um, but, but my understanding of, and my method of interpretation would say that can't be right. It can't be right because the people it was written to would say, what? Russia? We've never heard of Russia, right? Or Trump or Smith or, or the Pope. They have, no, they have no way of understanding what you're trying to say the book means and therefore it can't be right. It was written to real people who had to understand what it was saying for it to be of any use to them. So the understanding is that John has written to these people and he's written to them hoping, trusting that they will get what he means, even when he uses imagery, which he uses often. So, that's the kind of leading edge, but I want to add to it, I want to mix the breed a little bit, and I want to add to it a measure of idealism as well. So, yes, this is a first century document, it needs to make sense to first century people it was written to, but it also, what one of the purposes of this book is to unmask spiritual forces that are at work behind the events and entities of the first century that these people were living through. So it's unmasking, yes, the, the 666 refers to Nero, right? But it wants to unmask Nero and say, behind the man who is d- doing so much damage to the church is this dragon, Satan, who is at large and, 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 and sort of mobilizing um, these forces of evil that are behind governments and, uh, and, and leaders and nefarious peoples. So it's unmasking, it's unveiling the reality, the spiritual reality beneath these things that we can't see. So in that sense, because it's trying to unmask realities that are themselves timeless, not bound to particular um, ages of, of human history, then I think we can gain application for our own situations. We can say, where, we can look around and say, where can we see the presence of evil at work and how can we resist it? This fundamentally is a document written to Christians to encourage them to persevere in the midst of the what, what, what the author calls Babylon. They live in a fallen city. They live in a city full of injustice and, and, and the injustice is fueled by bad actors who are themselves motivated and sort of um, given energy by bad spirits. And so the same is true for us today. This is not just happening in the first century, it's happened throughout history, and to that extent, the idealist reading is right, I think. And so in that sense, we can apply this text to ourselves. Now, this way of interpreting Revelation is pretty much the way I interpret most of the Bible. 
You'll know that if you've been here any length of time. We have to figure out what the original audience needed to know, and then from there we say, how can we apply this to ourselves? That's pretty much what we're doing throughout this. So you can keep or leave all the nerdy stuff and just know that's, that's where I'm coming from. This book is given to us to reveal stuff that we would otherwise not see. We in our generation, even with all of our chronological snobbery and our inflated sense of our intellect, we have committed a, 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 an, what I think is an incredible error. That is, in our scientific method, we have reduced everything down to what we can experience through our senses. We believe for something to be true, we have to see it or hear it or taste it or smell it. We have to be able to sense it. And what this book tells us is, no, 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 there is much beyond what you can sense that is very real and has a very real impact on human history. So in that sense... This book is not a crystal ball. It's, it's, like, it's like a pair of polarized sunglasses. All right? Here's what I did during this um, study week where I was reading through the book of Revelation and putting together the, the guide and stuff. I, uh, I happened to be on this farm out in the middle of nowhere in this little one-bedroom hut, and uh, that's where I did all my study. But fortunately for me, very close to that, like within a few meters, there was a really nice pond full of fish and so I you know just when I had to take a break all right judge me whenever I had to take a break I, uh, I just would I would in fact anytime I was hungry because I didn't have any food I would just go and catch something and eat it and um, and and what helped me a whole lot was the first time I went there I was standing on this little dock that was came out off the the bank of the lake and the water was really nice it was spring fed or something because it was nice and clear but it was like stained and so it was hard to see through it and it was really sunny all that week it was beautiful so it was really hard to see anything I like the kind of fishing where you where you spot and stalk like you got to you got to see the fish and then you got to try and catch it and um and so the second time I went out there I took my very expensive pair of Polaroid sunglasses. Polarized means it cuts out the, the vertical light, I think, and it just, so there's no reflection on the water. You can see straight through it. And all of a sudden, as soon as I put on those glasses, I could see what was going on beneath. I could see where the fish were. I could see where the, the weeds and the, the sunken logs were. I could even see occasionally like a little yabby flying through the water. Like I'd see everything. That's what the, Re- the book of Revelation is. It's an unveiling, it's an unmasking, it's, it's taking the, the reflection off the water so we can see beneath. Not a crystal ball, but a pair of sunglasses. Yeah. Now, I wanted to finish up this morning by just giving you three sort of big ideas about... Um, about uh, what I'm hoping us to get out of this series, but I'm out of time, all right? So I'm not going to do that. We've still got um, time to worship the Lord, which is what this is all about, and, uh, um, and time to share the Lord's Supper together. So all of that that I was going to say is in the guide. It's in the first couple of pages. So just, you can catch up then. I just want to um, finish by asking really for God's blessing on this. Um, I understand that particularly when we do these sort of groundwork sermons, 
the nerdy sermons, the context sermons, it can come across like uh, a kind of intellectual exercise, and that's not what this is. It requires your intellect for sure, but what we're doing here is wanting to open ourselves up to being blessed by God through his supernatural word, all right? In this book, you're going to see a picture of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, and that's because when Jesus speaks, his word has, as, as the text tells us, his word is powerful, it's sharp, it's, it can cut through, even between soul and spirit. We want God, by his word, this particular letter written to a particular people with application for us today, we want it to change us. I don't know about you, but I'm not content to be myself. I want to change I believe the Christian life is all about change. We want to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. I'm, I, don't, I don't like being me. I want to be more like Jesus. So, let me pray to that end. And then I just want to encourage you to keep coming back and keep, keep being a good tourist as we journey through this book. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us together, and I thank you for this great privilege of opening up such a wonderful text, such a beautiful text, a reassuring text. I pray that for those of us particularly who have been confounded or overwhelmed or or even frightened By this text, I pray that you would change our experience of it forever, that we would see it as a great and wonderful encouragement to us to stay true, to persevere in faith, to walk step by step with the Lamb who was slain. Father, please bless this church and bless all churches who with Humility and sincerity, open up your word week to week. Please speak to each one of us. Please make us more like your son. Give us understanding, but even more, give us your Holy Spirit. Fill us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a moment now just to reflect on that text that we've looked at this morning. Um, continue to pray, ask for God's blessing on us. Um, Just encourage you to stay seated during this song and to do that. Think um, Think about how you can take what you've heard this morning and go forward with it, whether that's in your household's conversation over lunch or a time during the week where you can work through the the guide together for your small groups in whatever capacity you're able. Let's pray and ask God and and avail ourselves of his ministry through his word by his spirit. So do that as we sit and then uh, Elsa's going to come and pray for us, intercede for us, and then we'll sing a couple more songs. See the King of Glory. 
Hosanna. 